Mark Sweeney, and this is the second episode of ITG's ABCs, a feature in which I take a look at short stories from anthology collections or that are found backing up lead features in any number of titles. On this episode, I'll be looking at a story from the late 1990s from one of DC Comics' wildly popular, or at least wildly popular with me, 80-page giants, specifically the Flash 80-page giant number two. In the mid to late 90s, DC Comics, in addition to the exercise annuals, which were an expected, well, annual treat, though many of them felt more like tricks sometimes, uh, they also released a bunch of other oversized content, namely Secret Files and a revival of the idea of the 80-page giant. In DC's Secret Files, one could find a full-length story pertaining to some particular character or group along with a dozen or so profile pages in the Who's Who mold, though not often as detailed as the old Who's Who books. Uh, plus there'd be other bonus content like timelines, maps of headquarters, and maybe a short one to two page story. I love those things and I bought a ton of them. And they weren't cheap, they were like four to five dollars a pop. Uh, I also bought several of the 80 page giants which was in a way a revisitation of a series of books DC put out in the mid 60s a key difference between the new 80 page giants and the earlier ones uh, the earlier ones were filled mostly with reprints while these new releases were chock full of new material in an anthology format so you'd find in most cases seven 10 page stories uh, many of them quite excellent uh, another difference, of course, is the uh, price tag. The old giants went for a quarter, and these new ones were were five bucks off the stands. Again, not cheap. Uh, there was some great talent associated with these new giants. Some surprising creative team pairings that produced some some very cool stories. I really loved these. Among the ones I bought uh, were the Starman one, the uh, Legends of the DC Universe ones. Those were great. JLA had several of them, uh, but one of my favorites of these was the Flash 80-page giant number two, cover dated April 1999. There were some very cool stories in this book, which was released during the time when Wally West was the Flash. Uh, though the month this came out, Wally found himself in his own title in an epic adventure called Chain Lightning, which I won't go into too much here, but... It was implied that by Epic's end, there'd be some uncertainty about Wally's future as the Flash. And it's actually Wally's recent return in the present day from obscurity as part of DC Rebirth that has gotten me thinking about uh, this volatile time in Wally's life, this particular 80-page giant, and the last story in this issue, which takes a look at the legacy of the Flash of Wally West. Uh, from a very interesting perspective, one that is in a way very near and dear to the heart of this podcast. And I want to talk about that story, but first I want to say a little bit about my relationship, my history with The Flash. Though the legacy of The Flash has loomed large over my comics life, uh, I'm not quite sure how I first became aware of the character. Could have been Super Friends, could have been some other licensing product. Uh, I did have a couple of appearances in my very earliest comics, Justice League of America number 232 uh, had a cameo, The Flash, in Green Lantern number 180. I was even introduced to Jay Garrick, the Golden Age Flash, in issue 37 of All-Star Squadron. This comic and that issue of JLA 
which is part of a JLA JSA team up, uh, gave me a crash course, my first crash course in uh, the multiple Earths of the DCU. It was another comic, though, that put the Flash on the map for me. And that was Crisis on Infinite Earths number eight. How old was I when this came out? Eight, nine? This comic blew my ever-loving mind. It was my first issue of Crisis, that greatest of superhero epics. Uh, I had no idea what was going on. I had only a vague knowledge of who some of the characters were, no clue who others were. Uh, but I couldn't believe what I saw on those pages. The Flash, star of cartoons, comics, and superpowers action figures, died heroically saving the universe, the universes. That comic made such a big impression on me. In those days, I had no clue about collecting comics and release schedules, but I somehow managed to get three consecutive issues of Crisis, eight, nine, and ten. It just, that just wasn't done back then, at least by me. But witnessing the death of the Flash, it sparked something in me. Crisis number eight became so important to me that I felt like I just willed those next two issues into my hot little hands. But Flash wasn't referenced much in those following issues, at least he wasn't until the, the epic final chapter of Crisis on Infinite Earths when another defining Flash moment helped shape my ideas about the, the depth of the DC Universe and possibility of legacy, of heroic legacy. So in my eyes, in my personal world of comic collecting, Barry Allen, the Flash, did three supremely important things. True, he helped usher in the Silver Age of Comics, and I think that's important, but I wasn't around in 1956, so that didn't mean much to me personally, at least back in 1986. First important thing Barry did was die. And though it was a ground zero of sorts for me that helped open up the the complexity of these imagined worlds, it, it might actually be the least important of these three important feats. The next feat was that he passed on the, the mantle of the Flash. This happened in that final issue of Crisis when Wally West, formerly the sidekick named Kid Flash, graduated to the big leagues. He wore the costume of his mentor and assumed his name and his role as one of the A-list heroes of the DC Universe. And the third great feat of Barry Allen was that he stayed dead. For a long, long time, Barry Allen stayed dead. Red B dead. And Wally West was allowed to, to grow into the role of the Flash. Unique, really, among the sidekick characters. All the Teen Titans, they grew up to some degree, but Wally was the only one, at least for a while, who really struck out on his own, gaining a, a long-running solo title and exploring what it meant to be the Flash, defining the nature of the speed powers more deeply than any speedster character before him. I feel like I was only properly introduced to Barry Allen in that issue of Crisis, and, and it made me sad that I got that opportunity only to have to say goodbye to him in the space of 22 pages. But I also became very excited to be able to witness the adventures of a new Flash. I was there right on the ground floor, and got to see through hundreds of issues of The Flash, uh, a real growing process, a maturation under the guidance of a quartet of super-talented writers, Mike Barron, William Messner Loebs, Mark Wade, and Jeff Johns, plus some others mixed in there. Brian Augustine, I think, played a really big part in this, too. And I feel like I grew up right alongside Wally. 
And so while The Flash's Jay Garrick and Barry Allen became so important to me, and The Flash franchise one of the most important in my collection, to me, Wally West was THE Flash. Then at the tail end of his solo series in 2008-2009, somewhere around there, when some cracks started to show and the groundwork was being laid for the return of Barry Allen. It wasn't this on its own, but it was part of a big wake-up call to me and felt like the the end of something, the end of a generation, maybe the beginning of a new one, and I knew it was time for me to check out of the, the new comics market. But that freed me up to continue filling in gaps in my Flash collection. I became obsessed with buying buying up Barry stories from the 70s and 80s, which I'd really been digging, right, from right around issue number 270 of Barry's title, right through the trial and the end of the series, which dovetails into crisis and makes me feel like I've maybe brought this history of my Flash origin full circle. But there's a Wally Flash story I want to recap and discuss, so I should take care of that next. Hey, Mike. Hey, Chris. What's up? I just got back from the comic store. What'd you get? Uh, some really good books. They had the latest issues of Saga and Batman, and I got the latest collection of Walking Dead. That's cool. I just got some in the mail, too. I got the latest collections of Adventures into the Unknown, The Spirit, and Young Romance. I've never heard of any of those. Oh, they're all from the Golden Age. The Golden Age? You've heard of the Golden Age of comics, right? Well, of course, but... I've just never read that much from it. Oh, you're missing out. There's some great material here. And nowadays, they're really reprinting a lot of it. I tried it once or twice, but I never got into it. Oh, you should really try again, man. There are some amazing writers working in that era. Bill Finger, Gardner Fox, Joe Simon, and some of the best artists to ever work in the industry. Jack Kirby, Will Eisner, Joe Kubert. And it wasn't just about the superheroes then. They produce science fiction books, crime, romance, humor, all sorts of genres. Wow, you really love that stuff. You should do a podcast about it. No, you're right. I should do a podcast, and you should do it with me. We can call it Comics in the Golden Age. And we could create a website for it, comicsinthegoldenage.com. And we could also publish episodes on iTunes and Stitcher and make a fan page to follow over on Facebook. Heck, we could even talk about the golden age of the modern age, also known as 90s image comics. No. No, Chris. No. So join us for the Comics in the Golden Age podcast, available through iTunes and Stitcher, and visit us on Facebook or at comicsinthegoldenage.com. Okay, so The Flash, 80-page giant. Number two, cover dated April 1999, has seven stories. Uh, done by some primo talent, names like Norm Brayfogle, Christopher Priest, Butch Geis, William Mester Lobes, Ron Lim. There's an outstanding Wally and Linda story about love and mortality by a writer named Mark Kivlak. And as far as I can tell, I'm a little surprised by this based on the excellence of the story, but it's his only comics writing credit. But anyway, tucked in the back of this book is my favorite story of the bunch. It's called Flash of Hope. It's written by Tom Pyre. Illustrated by Steve Lytle, lettered by Steve Dutro, colored by Noel Giddings. And there's a special thank you to Mark Wade. Story opens, a caption box tells us, at the Flash Museum, 1,000 years from now. 
The old place, which has been seen in tons of Flash comics, is in an obvious state of disrepair. There are broken statues out front, Johnny Quick, The Flash, other speedsters. While inside, there seems to be some effort to clean the place up by two robot keepers named Dexter and Miles. These bots were named after Dexter Miles, uh, who kept and curated the Flash Museum back in the 20th century. So there's some dusting and straightening going on as they argue about this and that. Uh, the arguing between these two robots continues throughout the issue, and it's just part of their programming. Uh, and suddenly, something very fast whooshes right between them, trailing a thick lightning bolt. Dexter mistakes it for the Flash, but Miles reminds him that no one has called themselves the Flash for centuries. On the next page, we see that it's... XS, the Legion of Superheroes' own speedster and granddaughter of Barry Allen. The robots are very reverential to Jenny, calling her Her Highness. XS has come to deliver a vid chip player that the robots have requested. There's a particular vid chip in the museum's collection that they've been wanting to view for a long time, but uh, this is an apparently ancient and obsolete technology at this point, I guess like VHS or even... DVDs, sadly. And XS says that uh, as no player was available, she asked her teammate Brainiac 5 to reinvent it, which she apparently has, as XS inserts the chip into the player, and boom! A 3D image of a flash fills the room. This flash is surrounded by electrical energy, like he's made of lightning, and it's a cool image, a cool costume, colored kind of like Wally West's Kid Flash costume in negative. So a red top half, shirt, cowl, cut to allow hair, or in this case, lightning energy show. Yellow lightning emblem, and then yellow pants and red boots. Excess and the robots kind of ooh and ah. And when Jenny asks, one of the robots explains that the image dates from 2054 and says that at the time, Wally West, the third Flash, would have been in his 70s. I'll incidentally be in my 70s when 2054 rolls around as well, which is strange to think about. Uh, but this I thought was interesting. Usually writers will go out of their way not to date characters by age, but I guess being so far in the future, it doesn't matter much in this story. The robots are interested in the identity of this Flash, and they think it may be Wally West, and ask XS to study the image, the Flash's face. As due to a little time traveling, Jenny had actually spent some time with Wally and crew. She can't really verify anything, but describes how much she liked Wally when she met him, and as she walks by this cool stone sculpture in the museum, it's a series of four vertically stacked busts, showing Wally in four different costumes, an earlier and later Kid Flash suit, and two of his Flash uniforms. And as they advance through the images on, and videos on this mysterious vid chip, XS suggests the robots use some of their fancy internal software to analyze the data that they're seeing and maybe get to the bottom of who this mysterious Flash of 2054 was. The chip shows the Flash zooming around some lab conducting strange experiments and working on esoteric problems. 
evolved to a state of living lightning by the speed force, yet still in that reverse Kid Flash costume. This Flash, who may or may not be an older Wally West, has all but abandoned the human race. They see that in the absence of a protector, the Midwest is raised by a being or beings whose abilities emulate those of the Flash's old rogues. Razor-sharp boomerangs, flames, mirrors. The Flash is begged by the government for help and initially refuses. But when the culprit of the killings and destruction is revealed to be the Mega Rogue, an embittered scientist from Gorilla City who had apparently robbed the graves of all the old rogues like Heatwave, Mirror Master, Captain Cold, and stolen their weapons, a sense of guilt forces the Flash to confront the Mega Rogue. Though just prior to their battle, Wally, who Dexter and Miles through their software have sort of assumed this Flash to actually be, Wally divested himself of a lot of the speed force energy, and as reported by the robots, rejoined the human race. The Mega Rogue actually ends up defeating the Flash, and then strapping him, strapped him to a giant boomerang and launched him to a place outside space and time. His life's work accomplished, the Mega Rogue apparently committed ritual suicide, turning the rogue's weapons on himself. At this point, Excess zooms out of the museum in tears, and the robots think they've upset her by reporting the circumstances of Wally West's death. But when one of the bots, Dexter, catches up to her outside, admiring a dilapidated Wally West statue, she's smiling through her tears. She sees the story of the Flash's end of days in in an optimistic way. Wally apparently perished on a giant boomerang, but... She asks Dexter, What do boomerangs do when you throw them? And that's how the story ends, with the thought that maybe the universe hasn't seen the last of The Flash. I love this story. It's a a great little package, script being food for thought, with just the right amount of ambiguity questioning the future of The Flash. It's, It's beautifully drawn. But it's really quite odd. No action really to speak of. It's almost like a story from mythology with the meat of the story being told from such a great distance in time and with the final battle of a great hero, that hero's sacrifice and prophesied return on a boomerang, no less. That idea really borders on the corny. Uh, It kind of still surprises me every time I read this story, but when I think about it, it's clever. It's simple kind of big picture way to think about the situation and ends the story with a great little twist that can come across like a like a wink or like a punch in the arm almost like something Grant Morrison would come up with I like these kind of stories that detail a possible future for a favorite hero not too long before this story was published DC's uh, event DC 1 million had a few such stories Superman and Martian Manhunter in particular stand out as interesting takes on what may lie ahead in the far future for each. This story would, in a way, tie into the current goings-on in the Flash title, as I said earlier, the then-current Flash epic, Chain Lightning, would lead to a temporary disappearance of Wally West, and there was some maybe maybe not-so-legitimate concern that we, we might not see Wally again, at least as he had been. Considering the number of other times Wally West has returned from impossible situations like journeys into the speed force and 
really right up to present times with his escape from obscurity and into DC rebirth. It's almost like the character's been on a never-ending boomerang ride. There are other echoes from this story found in The Flash ongoing, too. The idea of the super rogue, or mega rogue, made for a pretty chilling villain, despite putting in just a cameo appearance in this story. Uh, but that idea of the composite rogue with all the powers of the Flash's enemies was used uh, actually a few months after this story was published in the creation of Replicant, who was a big Flash bad for a couple of issues. And of course, it's always a treat to see XS, one of my favorite Legion members. Uh, and Tom Pyre writes her so well. She's sweet and patient with the robots and, and emotional and optimistic. Pyre, of course, was no stranger to the character. At this point, he was in his final year of five, writing the adventures of the Legion of Superheroes. And uh, just a bit of a plug here, I recently had the opportunity to ask a few questions to Tom Pyre about his time on the Legion. And I published that interview in a recent blog post on the home blog for this show, imthegun.blogspot.com. I really miss Jenny, and uh, can't wait for something to be done with her. She's been by far the most criminally underused member of the Speed Force community, which is a shame considering her place in the Legend of the Flash. I'd take her any day over Bart Allen. Uh, but Steve Lytle's artwork, he rarely ever disappoints. Lytle was at this time the regular cover artist for the Flash series, and I guess that's what he's chiefly known for. He's a fantastic cover artist and uh, must not work as at a quick enough pace to hold down a monthly book for any length of time, but his occasional stab at sequential storytelling is its always spectacular. I think he's the perfect artist for this story. In my mind, I associate him with his run of Flash covers, but I think most chiefly with his short but memorable run illustrating the Legion of Superheroes in the early 80s. So for this story in which the legacy of the Flash intersects with the 30th century of the Legion, uh, he's a great fit. I think Lytle's art always looks best when he inks himself, as he does in this story, and I love his strong silhouettes, bold outlines. There's never too much interior detail, and I like that. Nothing is ever over-rendered. I'll be putting up some of this beautiful artwork on the blog. Again, I'm thegun.blogspot.com, and uh, there you'll find my contact info should you want to get in touch with me. I'd like to acknowledge those who helped promote the last episode of ABC's on Twitter, which is my social media platform of choice. The episode which covered the debut stories of DC's Western hero Cinnamon got likes and retweets from Trekker Talk, Jeffrey Brown, Laura Waddy, DC in the 80s, Between the Pages blog, and from the Supergirl comic box commentary blog, Relatively Geeky Podcast Network, Kyle Benning of the Superman Captain Marvel Power Hour podcast, Laurel Phillips, Joe Crawford, Justice's First Dawn, C.H.R. Chavez, Malakatanki Perduto, Eric Conrad, Chris Sheehan from the blog Chris is on Infinite Earths, Michael Hsu, Martin Gray of the Too Dangerous for a Girl comics review blog, Philemon, and Gregorujo. Thank you folks so much. I also want to acknowledge a couple of additional iTunes reviews that I'm the Gun got. First, from uh, Chris, who's got a great podcast feed you can find at MythMakingETC. 
www.blogspot.com where he's got a couple of cool features including from kid to flash where he's taking a chronological look at the adventures of Wally West. I think you should definitely check out Chris's show, but about I'm the Gun, he writes, For the Forgotten Heroes. The unusual name of the show should tell you this is not just another podcast. I'm the Gun often shines a light on comic book characters that you probably haven't heard much, if anything, about on other shows. Mark's love of these characters comes through, and he communicates why, why we should care about them as well. Subscribe and you'll receive a diverse selection of topics that will keep you coming back for more. And from great friends of the show, Darren and Ruth Sutherland, hosts of the excellent podcast Trekker Talk, Warlord Worlds, and Xenozoic Xenophiles, they were kind enough to write of the show insightful reviews and discussions. Mark covers a variety of comics in this excellent series, including Shannon the She-Devil, Legion of Superheroes, Wonder Woman, Ms. Tree, Lady Blackhawk, Balloon Buster, and more. His reviews are thorough, and his opinions are insightful. A consistently great podcast. We look forward to every episode. Thank you, Chris, Darren, and Ruth. I was uh, thrilled to see those iTunes missives. I appreciate it. And thank you out there so very much for having a listen to this episode, which I think has now reached its conclusion. So until the next time, 11 pages is just too much story. Take care.